Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 133. Today we have Kirsten Besky. She is a mindset and transformation expert. She's a Harvard-educated, uh, experienced psychotherapist, uh, mindset coach, uh, former uh, lawyer as well. And so she's got some really great stories and insights and, uh, boy, some really uh, traumatic experiences as, as well that shaped her, like they've shaped all of us in some way. We had a nice interview, and uh, I'm excited to bring it to you. Before we jump into that, I want to remind you up front, as always, you are absolutely priceless. This uh, podcast is coming out uh, probably right after uh, Christmas. For those who celebrate Christmas, I hope you had a nice one and a nice holiday season for all of us, whatever you celebrate, if anything, and uh, whatever that is, I respect all of it <laughs> and uh, grateful to have you listening to us here. And uh, But you are priceless. I've been saying, and you know, off and on, I've pointed out the word priceless means literally without price. You're above the monetary systems of this world. You're above the prices that people place on things. And uh, along with that, you're not alone. You're never alone. And uh, a lot of people are going through a lot of things. Whatever your situation is, whatever it's been for you, uh, everything from job loss to uh, you know kids at home from school to just the virus itself, how it's affected various people. I've lost some people in my world uh, to this virus situation uh, who've lost their lives. And uh, you may have also and or had this. Uh, but I just want you to know, give you an audio hug here, however you can do that. But receive my hug, if you will, that uh, you are priceless, you're not alone, and uh Whatever your situation is during this holiday season and at any time, reach out. Reach out uh, at info at empowerhumans.com through our website, which is also empowerhumans.com. And, of course, at Empower101 on Instagram and Twitter. And, of course, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Uh, there's lots of people. Sometimes we get in this delusion, oh, I'm alone and I can't turn to anybody. But, you know, we talk in this podcast interview about limiting beliefs. Please, please, please open up and realize that uh, you're not alone and you have a lot of people around you who are willing to help lift and uh, support you uh, regardless of what's gone on what you may be feeling experiencing uh, along with that uh, let's go into our challenges real quick study there's always great resources for that we have no excuses these days we have access to so many great things i've been using these apps i've been talking about uh Sometimes I go through waves where I'll use Audible or I'll use this or that, and I've gone back to some of these library system apps, uh, Hoopla Digital and and Libby, and there's tons of audiobooks and and uh, you know ebooks and other things you can read and listen to. Plus, we got tons of other resources in this day and age with the internet and Google and all these things. Find good things that resonate with you and study. And I promise, my promise to you is that by doing that, you'll. Uh, find more peace and be more centered in your life and uh, just be in what I would call the light more often as you study truth or even if you're just reading fiction, whatever it is, stimulate your mind, study. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, along with that, our second challenge, of course, make great moments. A lot of times people are looking for doing that during holiday times and uh, you know, with family and loved ones, uh, you know, surprise, do things with your kids or your spouse or whatever you have, your friends or make great moments. If you don't have any of that around you right now, I encourage you to find other ways you can find meaning and value, make great moments, whether that's go out, go to Little Caesars, pick up some pizzas and go find people who are asking for help. And I promise doing something like that will lift you also. And if you do have friends, family, loved ones around you, do that with them <laughs> or something like that. Nothing better than uh, 
kill two birds at the same time of making great moments with your loved ones and lifting others while you can. So just some food for thought. Uh, use your mind, imagination, surprise each other, and let's make it kind of a, turn it into a sport of sorts. <laughs> Write a note for a loved one, make it, uh, make it fun. So study, make great moments, and of course our last challenge, let's keep doing this podcast together. I'm excited to bring you Kirsten Besky. Uh, she's got a lot of great insight, very uh, smart, intellectual woman. And uh, without further ado, let's jump in. Here we are with Kirsten Besky. Here we go. We are pleased to welcome Kirsten Besky, who is founder of APRO Positive and uh, Kirsten Besky Coaching, also your mindset transformation expert, and uh, of course, Harvard-educated uh, psychotherapist. All these things tie into this coaching that you do now. Kirsten, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Trying to put a lot of logs on my wood fire and stay warm up here in Vermont. Yeah, we're talking about that. Vermont is uh, a very pretty place. I only say that from pictures. Um, but yeah, I had family, you know, I had a stepdad whose mother was from there. And so they, my mom and him would go and they'd, they'd, I'd see pictures. It's just very beautiful. And then they bring back syrup, maple syrup. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. That was the first thing I have. A, 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 one of my kids came home from college just two days ago and the first thing I said is where's the maple syrup so I had to go load up on some more maple syrup <laughs> yeah because the rest of you know a lot of the rest of us in the country we're just buying uh you know whatever's in the store normal stuff that just it, but it's different you know I've tried both so I can I can say with a surety you can tell all your syrup people were promoting them today too but uh, <laughs> exactly you know it, you can definitely taste the difference and it gets you spoiled yeah, yeah. So you, how long have you been in that area, you said? You moved from Boston. Yeah, I was, um, well, once upon a time, I was an attorney in Boston. Um, yeah. And, you know, I also was educated in Boston. And we'd come to Vermont on the weekends all the time to get up in the hills because I'm a big fan of the outdoors and the mountains and um, just nature in general. And uh, at some point, uh, I was practicing law in downtown Boston and this job opportunity came to move to Southern Vermont. So instead of having to drive to our little camp in Northern Vermont every weekend to get out of Boston, we made the big leap and bought a house on 20 acres here in lovely Southern Vermont. And so all of a sudden you just had to walk out your back door to be out in nature with a beaver pond and apple orchard and even some beehives, right? So we've been up here about 20 years now. Wow, that's awesome. 20 acres, huh? goodness <laughs> that was sweet yeah i'm no longer on that property um but it was uh you learn when you're the city slicker that moves to uh the country you learn that taking care of 20 acres is actually a little bit harder than you realized yeah. um it's great but uh it takes a little effort so uh, mm. i've downsized into a, a smaller place now but the cool thing is when you live in vermont you can get on a trail within two seconds of leaving your house, no matter where you are. So really, <laughs> um, you don't have to own it. You can share it with other people. It's very nice. Wow. I'm going to have to come visit you. Uh, <laughs> that sounds amazing. It's interesting because uh, this last week before we're doing this interview, um, this will be coming out, I don't know, a week and a half or so after we're doing this, you know, full transparency to our audience. But so this last week, uh, we had somebody who who said that he found himself because he'd actually attempted suicide sometime before and he found himself uh found his center and all these things going into nature and i've just you know ever since then you know i live in las vegas like i was telling you and uh we have different it's a desert thing but we've got red rocks and we got mount charleston and other things out here um 
So we do our best, but it ain't Vermont, that's for sure. <laughs> but well, yeah, it's a different, um, it's a different environment. But I, you know, I think most people who enjoy nature can usually find kind of that feeling, no matter where you are, because that kind of there's that grandeur and sense of awe that you can get um, once you get out of your, you know, out of the metropolitan areas, right, and get out in the desert. It must have the it's a beautiful kind of stark quality to it that can be, you know, there's that connection, that little bit of a transcendent connection where you can kind of get a feeling that we're all so little and nature and the universe is so big. And it's, that's kind of the cool part about it. So I bet if you looked up at the sky in this last few days, when they had the meteor shower, you would get that sense, no matter, you know, whether you were 10 miles out of town. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it's probably, uh, in you know, in light of how we get caught up in our problems, it's it probably helps us psychologically to to be in big picture place. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast, get, looking at the big picture because it helps not get caught up in. We've come to find out a lot of times just the minutia of life. Just oh, this happened and this little issue at the bank or whatever, and then you realize oh, in the grand scheme of my life. I still have a lot to be happy and grateful for. So, um, right, absolutely. So you uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your background because obviously you mentioned you practice law. How does how does one go from that to what you're doing now and and the you know psychotherapist and the and the coach mindset coach and all those things? What's that What's that journey? What's your journey? Tell us. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. First, I'll, uh, the journey's a little bit more detail, but I will point out sure. that um, when, when you're a lawyer, uh, which I did for 14 years, um, and I really enjoyed at least 10 good years of it, mm-hmm. um, people call you counselor, right? That's an abbreviation for lawyer. They're like, yeah. oh, counselor as a joke. Um, <laughs> and so I actually played on a woman's hockey team here in Vermont when I was still practicing law. And my coach on my team called me counselor. That was his nickname for me. <laughs> and so when I decided I was going to change career and go back to school and get that master's in psychology and start psychotherapy, you know, being a psychotherapist. Um, he, he got all nervous. He's like, well, what am I going to call you now? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, his name was Phil also. I said, counselor, right? <laughs> so maybe spelled a little differently, but it's the same word. So, so you know, and I guess it's just the idea of um, the, when you're trying to be of service to people, um, they come to you with their problems, whether it's a law problem or um, you know, personal problem. And then you get to hear the details and then use all of your higher faculties to kind of synthesize all the facts and figure out, well, which, how am I going to make sense of this? And then how are we going to solve this problem? Right? So in essential, essentially, I was solving problems for people and actually corporations when I practice law. But now I s- help other people, you know, I empower people to solve their own problems as a coach. That's kind of, you know, the evolution of thinking that you're the one solving the problem when you're a lawyer and then actually helping people see the path that they actually have all the skills they need to solve their own problem and empower them to do it, guide them along the way and give them the support they need and they can accomplish almost anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that all makes a lot of sense. And of course we, we like the word empower around here on empower humans podcast. Um, Absolutely. So if you don't mind, can we rewind a little further as to, is there something I've, I've talked to a few lawyers over the years and I don't know, then in the deep recesses of my mind, the, people aren't satisfied in that profession. Uh, statistically, some people probably are and others 
by and large aren't. What, what made you want to go that route? We'll satisfy some of this curiosity. Yeah. Um, well, so um, I, I think that, you know, as you grow up, uh, obviously the fields that women could go into and let's see, this would have been in the late 80s when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I actually uh, finished uh, at Harvard, my undergraduate degree, and uh, spent a year working at a law firm uh, in downtown Boston. And it was a pretty small law firm. And I worked for in litigation, which was always something I thought I was interested in, which is, you know, when you're actually trying cases in court. Mm-hmm. And I had been a competitive athlete growing up. I had played competitive tennis since I was about 10 years old and played at a national level and played in college for that, you know, D1 team that was so fabulous back then. I was kind of, I was lucky to be on that team. Wow. Um, and, and so my identity as an athlete and the idea that I enjoyed competition made me think, well, maybe I'd like being a lawyer that tried cases because they're pretty cool on TV, right? And so some wise person um, said, why don't you go be a paralegal for a year and see what you think? Mm -hmm. Probably they were (laughs) like you, like, hmm, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And so I I think whether through good luck or bad luck, I landed at a fabulous place where the, the lawyers who worked there were fabulous role models and there was women there were women lawyers and there was a lot of fun people and that they enjoyed their work and there was a sense of humor in the office Mm -hmm. and they didn't work crazy hours and again remember this was a smaller law firm in boston you know under 20 lawyers probably yeah so i enjoyed it so much i said this is great i'm gonna do this it satisfies my intellectual curiosity um Mm -hmm. it satisfies my competitiveness and um, and I had this great idea that I could actually do good in the world. You know, there was this kind of um, social justice aspect to, you know, I, I can become a lawyer and I will help the causes of good. Um, yeah. And so, so that was kind of my entree into the idea. Then I went and spent a, a year ski bumming out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which was fabulous. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got around to going back to law school in Boston, I cried the entire way across the country because I was going yeah. back out of my nature mecca back to the city. Um, uh, yeah. But but uh, then I actually found a job following law school at a medium-sized firm, which back in those days was like 150 lawyers. Um, wow. <laughs> and there was still, there were women uh, partners at that firm. Yeah. Um, but um, it definitely, w- by choosing to go into the field of litigation, I absolutely put myself in a, um, a field that I may have, I would say maybe got in over my head in the sense that um, I really did enjoy the, um, the fighting. Well, we'll just call it the fighting. I used to <laughs> explain to people, oh, I just fight all day at work. So then when I go home, I don't fight with my, my spouse. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But um and this may get to what you were wondering about. Um, I didn't then choose to have children until I was actually a partner at the law firm in Vermont that I, that I um, practiced with. Yeah. And when I had my kids, and this is a whole nother story, each of my kids um, birth stories involve almost dying. Uh, <laughs> and we, I'm happy to talk more about that. And so because, and they're perfectly fine young adults now, so you don't have to, you know, all's well that ends well, but it was very hard um, for me both times I gave birth to try to get back in the saddle, so to speak, of working full time. Mm. And eventually um, 
the, the amount of energy that it took for me to be the mom that I expected of myself to these two children, um, even with some flexibility, um, part-time status, um, I lost the energy to fight, right? So mm. there's only so much energy we all have in the world. <laughs> and as my energy got sucked, sucked more and more into making sure my kids were alive and well, I didn't have enough energy to, to really um, enjoy the battle like I used to. And I, I was wise enough to think, well, when you stop enjoying the fight, you can't be an effective litigator. And there was really nothing else that I wanted to do. I, I, I always wanted to be a litigator. So the short version is I took a, uh, I hired myself a coach, you know, which I'm so p- pitching coaching, anyone who's listening, um, to help <laughs> me sort through what else I might like to do. And that coach was fabulous. And I you know, gave myself permission to do something I always had wanted to do, but never would have dreamed of it before, which was to go back to school and completely go back to school, get that master's in psychology and completely shift my, my trajectory of my career. So, mm-hmm. um, and I never have looked back in, with regret. So that's the good news. Yeah, that's quite a story. Uh, interesting. Well, and you mentioned we can get back to this. Do you want to talk further about the, uh, the near death kind of experiences that took place uh, in, I'm, I'm sure there's a level of trauma, but you did mention it. And, but a lot of times <laughs> well, those thanks. are the things, yeah, those are the things that shape us a little bit too, these more traumatic moments at times, but go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, because up to that point in my life, um, things had gone very smoothly. I had not had any really big um, health issues for me, anyone who, who I loved, you know, nobody had died really life was quite smooth up to that point. Um, so the decision to have kids, I, um, some people take lightly, some people um, know they always wanted to. I was one of those people that wasn't quite sure whether it was the best idea. Mm-hmm. And also because of some um, physical issues, I wasn't positive I'd be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when my then husband and I decided to try to have kids, it was a big decision, but it was a happy decision. Um, and because of the same uh, physical issues, which I'll just, I'll just name it, double uterus. That means you have two sides to your uterus. <laughs> Sorry, oh. anyone who the word uterus uh, um, <laughs> offends. But so, so um, <laughs> I have one of my children on one side and the other child on the other side. But the, um, huh. the risk there is that you may go into premature labor because um, of the complications from that. Mm-hmm. So my, my first child, I spent <laughs> three months um, bed rest. And I thought that was going to be the hardest thing I had ever experienced because I was a very active person. And three months of bed rest, I would have thought would have basically killed me. Um, so I had this whole setup at home where uh, I had my files brought to me. Uh, and I had a fax machine and email was just beginning. And every day I would do my work from my easy, easy boy recliner chair um, and, oh. you know, call my secretary and make revisions and fax things and email things. Um, now here we are in the middle of the pandemic and you could probably be on bed rest and be working full time easily. But back then it was a little bit more tricky with the equipment and the uh, technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but so then I happily gave birth to a beautiful daughter at full term um and everything was great and so we went into our one week well baby visit 
uh, if you're familiar with how that often works, is it, you know they say go home, take care of yourself, bring your baby into the pediatrician in a week so they can just make sure everything's okay. Yeah. And um, thank goodness that exists because what happened was when we arrived at the pediatrician's uh, office, I gave you know Cassandra over to the doctor, and the doctor's like, hmm, is is she upset? Um, I'm like, no. And I'm like, hmm. And she's listening to her, the heart. She comes back in with a EKG machine, <laughs> hooks a few tabs up and goes, hmm. So um, I would like you to just take her and just, you know, where the emergency room is over at the hospital, because they're all <laughs> right in the same like campus area. Yeah. Just walk over to the emergency room and I will join you there. And I'm like, what is going on? So it turned mm-hmm. out that um, the, that her heart rate was in a tachycardia and it was beating at around 350 beats a minute or some absurd number like that. Um, So um, we walked over to the emergency room when you can, this is when stuff began to become surreal. You know, if you've been in one of these kind of life or death situations Mm -hmm. and I just remember they took her from me and they just started going into full, you know, emergency mode and, nurses and doctors coming in and out and people on the phone up to Dartmouth, which is our, our big tertiary hospital. I live in a little town in Southern Vermont called Brattleboro is up at Dartmouth medical center. Mm -hmm. So they're on the phone to Dartmouth and there's people trying to get an IV into this little itty bitty baby and they can't get it in. They're trying to give her some medicine. Finally, an obstetrician comes in who's worked with neonatal patients before was able to get the IV in And they're like, okay, we get the helicopter coming down from Dartmouth. And I'm just, you know, in this place of shock as they try to apparently save the life of my daughter, who I had no idea had anything wrong with her whatsoever. Um, We end up in a helicopter. Um, They let me ride. That was another fun thing where they're like, usually they only let the patient ride. But since your daughter is only one week old, (laughs) we'll make an exception and let you ride in the helicopter with her. Mm -hmm. So um, I had a a lovely scenic helicopter ride up to Dartmouth. But the good news was at the beginning of the ride, as they put her in an isolate and clicked her into the helicopter, um, the apparently that at that point, something about the loud noise or something caused the tachycardia to stop. So the nurse that was Mm. in the helicopter with me was able to say, listen, I just want you to know that the heart rate is back to normal. So you do not have to worry. She's going to die on this helicopter ride. And I was like, thank the Lord. And so by the time we got to Dartmouth, things were normal. Um, And I knew she, this kid of mine was going to be hungry. And they're all like trying to get her checked into the neonatal intensive care unit. And I'm like, she needs to eat. And then she's, of course, cranky. So they let me feed her, blah, blah, blah. So we spent a few weeks up at Dartmouth in the neonatal intensive care unit while they tried to figure out what was going on. And they saw a mass in her heart. um, And they thought it must be a blood clot. Um, But when they tried to treat it, it didn't disappear. And it just wasn't moving. So then they needed to do a little more discovery. And they realized um, once they did the echocardiograms and everything that it was actually a tumor. And so it was a tumor in one of her ventricles that was big enough that it would cause a heart arrhythmia. Mm. So then we got to take an ambulance ride to Boston after about 10 days um, where the Boston Children's Medical Center doctors who have ex- num- billions of years of experience and wisdom in these areas 
um, tried to assess whether they needed to do surgery on her heart um, or not, because apparently once they figured out what kind of a tumor it was, it was something that supposedly within three years of birth would eventually disappear. But when they put all their, mm. their wisdom together, they decided it wasn't worth sending us home with a tumor in her heart because it was a little bit of a taking time bomb. So they said that they needed to take it out. And so then that became uh, doing open heart surgery on a, a infant who was now almost three weeks old. Uh, wow. <laughs> the good news was they, they told us that they do these type of things all the time. And so uh, we had a little faith in that. And I remember we, uh, the surgery occurred on um, March 17th, which is traditional St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. And I remember my husband saying, as we met the surgeon that was going to do the operation, um, he had an Italian name. <laughs> my, my then husband said, thank goodness he's not Irish. <laughs> I don't know why that seemed important yeah, at the time. Yeah. But um, the good news is that the surgery went perfectly they took out the tumor the recovery time was short and she came home only on what they call beta blockers which if you're familiar is just something to make sure you don't get all riled up and and have your adrenaline get your heart rate going too fast mm -hmm. and i can honestly say that despite years of follow-up we have literally not had one single problem with her heart since that time mm -hmm. um and so that's a miracle and it was fabulous and wonderful and so um, I, I can pause there, <laughs> okay. um, but you know, so that's child number one. And so I'm sure we have time limits on these things, but we did say out loud to each other and deciding whether we should have another child, what could be worse than open heart surgery on an infant? And uh, we found out, <laughs> we found out. And, uh, and so we, child number two, my son, um, I, I was uh, successfully not going on bed rest right up to the point where I may have had to go on bed rest if we hit that same point in the pregnancy as with my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and guess what happened then? <clears throat> uh, 2001, 9-11. So uh, yep. I, uh, I was about five months pregnant when 9-11 happened. And I did lose, I mean, I know many people were very affected by 9-11. I did lose actually my very first love, my first boyfriend um, when I was uh, young, but from home, um, died in one of the towers. And it, they didn't know for sure that he was dead until, you know, if you recall, it took quite a while to figure out who was where and who was missing and who was found and who wasn't yeah, going to be found. Yeah. And so in Fortric, uh, unfortunately, um, Patrick Murphy was his name. Um, was not found. And, and so uh, I was going to go to his funeral. Um, and I asked um, the doctor to just make sure that I was, you know, going to be okay to go, even though I was pregnant, because, you know, I had this risk that I would go into premature labor. And so um, for whatever reasons, you know, we'll just not speculate that night, I did go into labor. Um, and it, I was supposed to be having my, my son on January 7th, mm -hmm. and this was uh, September 26th oh when I went into labor, yeah. and um, we weren't even at, um, you know, I think they, they say 40 weeks of pregnancy, and we were only at a little under 27 weeks. We're at 26 weeks and something. They oh, count yeah. these days. It's like 26 weeks and five sevenths. 
Um, so they're like, basically, you cannot have this baby. And I was like, believe you, I do not want to have this baby. Um, however, uh, that was not to be. And so I ended up in another ambulance up to Dartmouth and conveniently got there before the baby was born. Um, but he was born um, at one pound, 11 ounces, um, and less than 27 weeks gestation. And that was a, the beginning of a journey that definitely changed my life. Um, and so the cool thing is um, I got to see him when he first um, was born, and he was perfect, um, perfect, beautiful, little blue colored, but perfect little baby. Um, but then with these premature babies, and he was a, a super preemie, um, they have yeah. to hook them up to all ty types of life support. So then they go from being a perfectly beautiful, cute little baby into kind of a little bit of a grotesque old man looking creature uh, mm -hmm. while they're hooked up to all their life support. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll shorten the story to he almost died several times, including um, having a bowel preparation from some medicine that literally um, it was, we were giving permission for them to go and take him into surgery um, and it, they said, you know, he's dying. We need to take him into surgery. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, you just said he'll never survive surgery five minutes ago. And they said, yes. <laughs> um, so when he went off to, to get the surgery done, we were given really very little hope that he would actually survive even the surgery, never mind to live now to his 20th year. Um, and that was pretty much the lowest. Um, we had, you know, been hoping every day for about, you know, three at that point he was probably like three weeks into his journey and he was improving and improving so this bowel preparation was basically he was dying in front of our eyes but um again a surgeon came to the rescue um kind of slashed him open uh, he looks like he's been in a big knife fight in his belly still and found it was just one hole not a whole bunch of holes and fixed up the hole and he survived and uh, after three months in the hospital. Um, so we're coming up on an anniversary for that. He didn't make it home for Christmas, but he made it home before New Year's. Uh, on January 20, no, on December 28th, he made it home um, on oxygen and very small, but he made it. And then, we, you know, you'd think, and that's the happy ending. But when you have a baby that's on oxygen and he had some other um, continuing health issues from that uh, bowel surgery, including an ostomy bag, if you're familiar with an ostomy bag. Yeah. Um, and for about six months, we had, it was kind of like being in the war zone, we called it, because he, he would be on a, uh, he was, what do you call it, a monitor, right, to make sure he didn't stop breathing. And then we had the ostomy bag. So I'll spare you the details, but it was kind of like in order to sleep, one, one of us would sleep upstairs, one of us would sleep downstairs with him because he would keep beeping and you'd think, okay, is he dead? Is he dying? You know, so you couldn't really rest. So then we'd shift, you know, in the middle of the night. Okay, now you, you go where he's going to die and I'll go sleep. Um, but at, after about, um, and when, when June hit, right, so six months of, of worry, um, they were able to fix his uh, intestine back up. So he's perfectly fine. Get rid of that ostomy bag. And he's been growing ever since. Um, mm. And so, um, so, so the, sh I'm shortening, you know, the, the story because obviously you don't have all day, <laughs> but, um, but the, the thing was, it was hundred percent. Both of them were like those life and death situations where you just don't know which way it's going to go. And so you begin to actually contemplate the, the bad side yeah. and what would that look like? Um, 
And I have to admit that after 9-11, between all the tragedy of 9-11 and then the irony of the birth of a, of a child into this world um, that at that time just seemed so grim that, that something like that could even happen, um, it really had that kind of existential level of crisis to it. Like, why would you bring a life into this world in this time, in this place, right? Yeah. You know, why do we even have children? What, what, you know, what do we, what can we promise them as hope for, for a better future? Um, and so it set me on a whole course of, of uh, introspection, exploration, spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, and that is actually what was the catalyst for me deciding to switch careers more than anything was really what's my purpose? What's my meaning? What, how do I make meaning of this world? And <laughs> in light of how I make meaning, and this is part of what I work with my clients on, when, you, when you're trying to make meaning of what, what's important in life for you and what's mm -hmm. your value system and how do you want to live your life, um, then you, sometimes you have to shift some things. So I happen to have been, um, when I was working as a lawyer, not representing people, but often representing companies, big companies, big companies like Verizon and Walmart, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of good that I could see I was doing in the world did not equal the amount of good I wanted to see that I was doing in the world. And so my big shift was to try to align the work I do in the world with my inner values. And so that I could look back with pride, you know, when I finish whatever this work is and feel that I had contributed to the world in a way that I wanted to, um, that I thought had purpose and meaning. Wow. That's quite a set of stories. And uh, thank you for sharing that, for, you know, making yourself vulnerable and opening up these, these uh, traumatic experiences, you know, that, I mean, that there's no way around it. This is traumatic. Uh, but at the same time, the interesting thing about traumatic experiences, Kirsten, is it's, uh, you know, we, and you've worked with lots of people I've gathered and as a psychotherapist and so on, it's, uh, they can, because a lot of times they can make or break you and literally in all caps, either one of those words, and it's kind of up to us. And that, that's why, you know, important it's real important to have a coach uh, like yourself uh, or a therapist you know someone step in and kind of help help us turn the steering wheel the the best direction after these these moments but I'm, and i'm sorry to hear about your your friend your first love and the 911 and boy that was traumatic for everybody I, <clears throat> but to, for it to yeah, hit that close to things. home <laughs> yeah, we, we free, we're here in the middle of a pandemic thinking how bad it is. Um, and it is very bad and, and very hard for a lot of people. Um, but, it, you know, we, you forget if you were alive during when 9-11 when happened. That was a really rough time also for this country. Yeah, you know, it, no, absolutely. I mean, and it, it's, it's fortunate, but unfortunate that a lot of times on the news, it's, we just talk about numbers. You know, I didn't know any of these people in the towers in 9-11, but uh, it's like, well, we know it was close to 3000 people. And, and now with this pandemic, it's, we're actually, I think beyond 3000 people per day, just with this virus stuff. But uh in any case, these these are people with families and and uh, life experiences and hopes and dreams and and uh, loved ones galore. And uh, so, the, aside from the numbers of who who died, it's it's many 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 thousands, tens of thousands, and millions affected uh, directly and indirectly. So, the, these experiences, um, I've got all kinds of things I could ask you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's <laughs> interesting. You go in for your one week 
uh, with with your daughter, and it right. turns into this whole thing uh, that becomes this whole chain of events that goes on for for some weeks. It sounds like, and then uh, yes, that was that was and, exciting and, and very manageable in retrospect, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's zoom out on the big picture because that's you know my audience knows that's what I like to do. Big picture for you personally, and bigger picture for humanity. How how did this really shape? You, you alluded to some of this already, so I acknowledge that. Um, it ha- let's la- ask it this way. Had this not happened, uh, what would your life look like now? Because it sounds like this changed your trajectory. Absolutely um, changed my trajectory completely. Um, and I'll be vulnerable by by letting you know how, how kind of shallow I think I was as a younger person. I remember when I was um, in college, I was surrounded by very smart people when I was um, at college and a lot of them wanted to be doctors. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, think about a college age kid now and when I see my own children, I'm like, wow, you know, brains are not fully developed at that time. Um, But I remember thinking, well, why would it, why would anyone want to be a doctor? You have to work so hard to do that. You have to go to so many years of school and then you have to do all those internships and fellowships and you have to work all night long and you know never be home how could anyone want to be a doctor with completely missing the point um of of maybe the higher good that doctors do and so i do remember explicit moment when i i believe it was a young intern was helping me late at night kind of the middle of the night in one of my emergency situations with probably my first kid up there in Dartmouth mm-hmm. in that neonatal intensive care unit, right? So some some intern in the middle of the night telling me it's going to be okay. This is what we did. Things are stable. It's going to be fine. And I remember thinking this, this doctor is like an angel, right? This doctor is like giving me this gift of, of care um, and knowledge and wisdom and reassurance. And I just wanted to just kick my younger self <laughs> so hard to just be like, you didn't get it at all, did you? You had, you were so selfish thinking all about you and what you, you know, you wanted to be able to have a good life and live a good career, but you hadn't thought anything about what you're contributing to the world. Um, and here these doctors are giving so much of themselves for other people to not just be healthy, but to live, right? That, you know, they're helping people actually avoid death. And I don't know, it just seemed to me that I had a really aha moment where, boy, my values are not skewed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think as parents, right, you know, part of, of becoming a parent is a journey of also rediscovering what your values are, um, because you have to then know how you're going to raise your children. What values are you going to pass on? So I think the values get clarified over time, probably no matter where you are um, in the world. But that was a real kind of jolt to me to just be like in that very vulnerable, scared place and have those doctors caring, genuinely caring about your kid living. You know, there's nothing, no greater gift than that. Um, And so I think that that was a good aha moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really a quite a takeaway given the past and the history and uh, and and I I'm always by the way we don't need to go into this but I'm always fascinated people with the, the Ivy League education and stuff because there's a it's just a really uh, well it's an elite place let's just be real <laughs> and it's, well you know and I I have a better perspective on that now too than I did because I, you know I didn't come from a, a 
exceptionally elite background. Uh, I always laugh because when I graduated from Harvard and I get together with some of my, uh, you know, friends afterwards and I'd meet their friends and their friends would inevitably ask me, so where did you prep? And at first I, I don't, I didn't even understand what they were saying. What do you mean? Where did I prep? Um, <laughs> like, that they met, where did you go? to one of those private elite preparatory schools um, that people go to, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I went to a West Windsor Plainsboro Regional High in Jersey, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that, um, that I was super fortunate to be able to attend an Ivy League school. I also think that um, I didn't, I, Harvard did such a good job with their diversity of their admissions that the people I was surrounded with had all different types of backgrounds. Um, yeah. and I could go on about the fabulous roommates I had, you know, one mm -hmm. from Brooklyn, you know, we, we kind of had somebody from every category that you could think of and we're, or we all were awesome together. Um, and yet now, especially these days with all the kind of, uh, what we call it controversy around people paying their way into schools. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, and in the idea of the. Um, legacy uh, admissions where generations get to benefit off the backs of, you know, their parents instead of on their own merits. You know, there's absolutely a lot of problems with it, but uh, conveniently I was young and ignorant and I just enjoyed my time there. And since I was one of those geeks in high school, it, to me, it was this great joy that I was now surrounded by fellow geeks. You know, that was, that was my, I thought that was <laughs> the best thing. And I, I, I definitely thought of it, from my personal perspective as more of like this intellectual thing and not as an elite, um, maybe class oriented thing, which I now see was just, I think, ignorance. Um, mm -hmm. But that's okay. You know, um, we all learn as we age. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what we ought to hope for. Uh, and, and, and we ought to also be open, I believe, to the reality that we're going to shift and grow and learn and, you know, change our outlook and stuff in that whole process as well. So, um, as, as we talk about all this, and uh, again, I appreciate you opening up these stories, and um, uh, let's talk from the coaching standpoint a little bit uh, as far as, you know, mindset and, and changing. You know, I recently re-listened to this old uh, Awaken the Giant Within from Tony Robbins, which uh, it's a digitized recording that you get through. I use this app called Hoopla and another one that goes to the local library, but it's like all digitized. You can download it, but it's like you've reached the end of side one because it was a cassette back in the day awesome. and yeah. uh, it's interesting. But anyway, he talks a lot about changing mindset and all these things and disrupting patterns. What, what is kind of your, and in your experience, both as a psychotherapist and intellectual person and as a coach, what is your experience with people, their habits and changing them? And I know that's a broad question, but uh, answer it uh, as you like. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I mean, it really does get to the heart of, of it. Um, and, you know, the funny part is that the, what, you know, the structure you just talked about that Tony Robbins has on his um, cassette programs. Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, the interesting part is we can describe this in so many different ways, but it really is kind of the same thing because we're all humans and we all have our human biology and the human biology is what kind of keeps the neural pathways you know, in the, you know, when we talk about your neural pathways have been wired in a certain way. Um, and that's what forms your, your, you know, if you think about mindset, the things that make someone's mindset is first of all, your, your thoughts, 
right? And your thoughts are often based on your experiences, but you take enough experiences and you start to have your own thoughts and you bundle up those thoughts and they start to turn into beliefs. And then you bundle up those beliefs and it becomes that mindset lens through which you, you interpret the world. So we like to think that we see the world, but it's actually that we're constantly interpreting the world based on our belief system, which is based on our thoughts, which is based on our experience. And so um, one of the ways that when people start to change, that kind of concept of change is getting curious about, well, are my beliefs as solid as I think they are? Uh, And, and most of us, it's either some parts of our lives or other parts, those beliefs are actually invisible limiting beliefs, right? They're so baked into our, our system of what we believe to be true that they are to us, you know, invisible. There's that um, saying, you, uh, you can't read the jar when you're stuck inside of it, right? You can't leave, read the label on the jar when you're inside the jar. So yeah. I think that it's not, a, um, it's not anyone's weakness that we don't, can't see what our limiting beliefs might be. But it's, um, so it's not your fault, your fault, my fault. It's not our fault that we don't know necessarily what our limiting beliefs are, but it can be our responsibility to start to figure out, do I have some, right? And, and if I have some, what do I want to do about it? And so having that third person um, that's not just a mirror, but actually can provide you with an additional perspective yeah. to be able to see yourself a little bit more objectively can really start to put a different lens on your vision and really start to let you see inside yourself in a way you couldn't alone. Mm-hmm. And then that can start the transformation process. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, great point. I found that personally, you know, I've done my share of uh, counseling and therapy and stuff uh, on the receiving end that is. And, uh, and yeah, I can, I can, back up everything you're saying about that. And one question I have, having done all this that you've done with presumably a fair amount of people, what are some examples? I mean, I I think a lot of people know this, but real common examples of some of the limiting beliefs that people have, because it can range from everything from your business and economic standpoint to our bodies and uh, other things. What, What are some examples of some of these limiting beliefs? Yeah, well, um, I'm just thinking, you know, from the top of my head, um, one thing that comes to my mind is, um, and this is actually a personal example instead of a client example, um, but I do work with clients around this. Um, I stopped drinking alcohol about, hmm, I don't know, we're going on about five years now. Um, and and I uh, had known since I was younger that alcoholism ran in my family. So Mm -hmm. I was always very cognizant of the idea that I might be at risk for becoming um, addicted to not only alcohol, but anything. I I identified early on, had an addictive type personality, um, overcame some uh, uh, eating disorders when I was younger. And um, so in order to begin to change something like that type of a pattern around using substances, uh, you you might not think you can, like the idea of, of um, not drinking to someone who's a regular drinker 
is actually just kind of out of the scope of the possible. Maybe they've, you know, you've tried it um, and, and keep coming back to it. Or a lot of people actually around alcohol, they, they don't even, they think, well, I know I can stop whenever I want. So why bother stopping? But um, it's that idea, I guess what I'm thinking of is the um, belief that I can't, right? Or um, I believe at some point that I could never give up sugar or I would die. Wait, I don't, have you ever tried to give up sugar, Phil? No, I, I've seen people <laughs> yeah, do it and they have a hard time, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I guess it's the idea that like something that you're so habituated for, you actually might not even think you want to give up to begin with in, in the stages of change in psychology that's called pre-contemplation. Like you, you don't even realize it's in your, um, it's not even in your scope of vision of anything you'd want to change. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then if you do think of that, you might want to change it. You just think, well, I can't, right. Like it doesn't, you don't get anywhere past. I can't. Um, and so that would be one kind of limiting belief where you don't even get started on the path because you're so sure you're going to fail. Um, and, in mm -hmm. when you work with, um, thinking of my clients, you know, say I'm, I'm working with a client who is an entrepreneur and they're beginning their entrepreneurial journey. Um, they, a limiting belief is something like people will only pay this much for this service. People won't pay, you know, we'll just use, you know, my, I, I'm only, my hour of time is only worth $100 instead of, um, and that's their limiting belief is that that is what the real, that's what people will pay $100 mm. where really once you explode their belief system, um, they will realize that people aren't paying it, aren't valuing things in that way and that maybe the service that the coach is providing um, is going to change someone's life so much that the value is much higher, right? And maybe it's not even a per hour value. Maybe it's a per experience value. If I'm, you know, if I can, if as a coach, you can take somebody from, you know, believing th that they um, are limited in some way to realizing, and this is why my group is called Becoming Boundless, to realizing they can actually dream bigger and accomplish more things uh, at a higher level than they ever dreamed. What's the value of that? It's like one of those commercials, right? You know, the visa commercial, like that's priceless, you know, to be able to really shift someone's life so that they have more um, success, joy, and growth that, you know, to use your tagline, yeah. that's, um, that's a priceless gift that you, someone can give. So, you know, that then that hundred dollar an hour belief system is completely exploded and and then they can start to reconceptualize their value of their services by a different measure yeah. um and so that, that's the type of thing you know everyone that's what came to mind um yeah. uh i i was working today with a client uh who was having issues with um feeling worthy, but it came down to, as it does with so many women, um, body image issues uh, around, you know, not being an, uh, enough, you know, the beauty, the beauty myth that we've got going on in this country that, you know, women are supposed to look a certain way and be a certain way. Mm -hmm. So to, to try to work with that uh, belief system, you know, whether you want to buy into that beauty myth or whether it's time to, you know, how is that serving you? Or do you want to come up with your own um, belief system around value and beauty. Um, so, you know, to, to realize that buying into society's belief system is a choice that you can make, or it's a choice you can choose not to make. Mm. Um, so really that's that empowering piece. Yeah. The, and 
Boy, you you said a, a ton of really great uh, kind of indisputable information there. And I appreciate you elaborating on some of that and opening up some of these uh, examples and so on. I, uh, boy, I, there's so many places I could go with this, but there's, as, as we talk about it, um, one thing I want to just quickly ask you, because I've, it seems like I've read that people and their decisions, because you talk about alcohol running in family, just using that example, that, how much of that is tied to decisions of past generations? Because we just, we talk about things like, well, oh, genetics, so you're predisposed to this or that, but are the decisions that are made by these past generations or us now uh, for future generations, does, does that and its ramifications pass along genetically to the, the next Like, Oh, well, you might now be predisposed to some of these bad habits of your uh, <laughs> ancestors. Let's just say, uh, do you have any insight on that? Well, yeah, I have a, a couple thoughts. Um, one is that in the field of, I, I think they call it epigenetics, um, they're learning more and more the shocking reality of how um, stress and other environmental factors can actually alter our genes. And it does then come through generations and, and trauma. Trauma can come now they know it actually changes some of the genetic coding and can come through generations and affect yeah. future generations. So that's actually... Um, a real thing that they're learning more and more about every day as they do the research in that area. At the same time, there is no reason to um, feel fatalistic about it because even though, um, you know, there, the, the, if we use alcohol as, as one example, there's um, a certain um, genetic, uh, I will call it a defect, um, a certain genetic marker that people have that, their liver actually metabolizes alcohol differently than someone who doesn't have this marker. Mm. And because of that different way of metabolizing, that will lead people to tend to become alcoholic more. And that's why you see that um, maybe in, in groups of um, in families or even in um, kind of, I don't know, uh, communities of, or even entire countries, I'm thinking of the stereotype. Of, of poor Ireland, um, but um, th that's why there can be this this um, this genetic link that does actually run directly through a family line. However, that being said, that doesn't mean that it's a, a deterministic type of a thing. So you still have choices. You still have power. Um, and in fact, knowing that you uh, may be kind of at risk for that type of a thing gives you so much information to be able to shift your behavior um, and shift uh, the way that you interact with the world in a way that's going to make you end up healthier, right, because of it. So knowledge is power in that case. So knowing that you may be a little bit more likely to fall on that side of the equation is going to give you the information you need to make wiser choices along the way. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it kind of ties into all change, right? Insight and knowledge is power when it comes to trying to transform your life. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. It's, it sounds like it's a combination of nature and nurture. And also uh, it, it kind of underscores really the, the deep ramifications of our decision-making not to just think, oh, I'm just, you know, I just decided to over drink or whatever uh, five nights a week or every day. But it, it, it kind of it kind of hints now that we have some of the science to back it up that 
doing that or doing certain things can really affect uh, your future generations as well for those who decide to reproduce and all that as well. But uh, it's, it's an interesting, I, I've always found this topic real fascinating because uh, we humans like repetition. We like being able to, to plan on something because I'm just, I'm just used to, you know, watching this show or doing this thing and, you know, anything from business to sexuality to the other things we consume and uh, just do exercise. So let, let's talk about real quick, and I don't know how much time you have because we've covered a lot here and I want to I keep going if we can. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, you know, I would love to keep going too. Unfortunately, I did a book a client for <laughs> okay. two o'clock who I can put off for a little bit, but um, um, and we can always, always revisit anything, you know, if you would like to spend it more time another time that's totally i'm um, totally uh, down with that yeah, but maybe, um maybe i would yeah but you know i think that late i heard recently this was exactly what you were just uh, describing the idea that humans like consistency and predictability um and at the same time we crave novelty and um new experiences and those are such polar opposites um, and I heard it said recently that your head wants the consistency, but your soul wants the freedom. And I love that. Um, and so part of what we do, the dance is to come to a, a place of, of harmony, right? Between those two separate polarized um, desires so that we can not end up bored and, yeah. and not end up, you know, so, so out of, um, out of any kind of routine that we feel disjointed and, and a mess. So, but yeah, to come up with a nice harmony and flow between those two polar extremes. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I went out of respect to you and your client. I don't want to take more time, but yeah, it's one of those things. Tony also, t I talk a lot about Tony. A lot of people do, cause he's one of the, you know, giants literally and figuratively in this field, but <laughs> as far as all the things he does, but he does his six human needs and certainty and uncertainty are both seemingly, like you just said, in another language, contradictory things, but that we need both. And like you said, finding a harmonious dance. And uh, I can't say enough about all the things you do and the, the just the power of choice and what we may do, we'll, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll re, uh, redo like a, like a sequel. Let's pick up where we left off. And uh, I want to remind people as well, you have this free mindset mastery workshop uh, January 11th through your Facebook page, Becoming Boundless, right? Your Facebook group. Is that exactly, correct? Exactly, yeah. So I think you can just search on Becoming Boundless and look for Kirsten Besky or April Positive and you'll know you found the right group. Okay, cool. I'm going to actually see if you'll accept me into the group. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Go do your thing and uh, take care of your, your responsibilities and all this stuff. And uh, I can't thank you enough for opening up, sharing all these principles. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely, now, now our audience can be with bated breath for a sequel. Oh, where are we going to go from here? So uh, cool. Thank you, Kirsten. And to our audience, uh, great if you spend time with us. We're flattered and uh, go empower yourself and empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.